This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Tesla Shuttle. So, uh, Nancy, it's a, it's a pleasure, an honor, a, a great privilege to, to meet you and get to discuss with you uh, a few things for our Clean Tech Talk podcast. If, if you have any uh, intro on, you know, your sort of how you've got into clean tech, that would be, a, I think, a fun place to start is, you know, what, what got you into clean tech in the first place and, and when was that? Sure. Well, first of all, um, thank you so much for what you do in, in terms of Clean Technica and the podcasts and the reporting. It's so important to our movement to to have high quality journalism and and discussions. And so, I just want to give you a shout out because I know a lot of people follow you guys with, you. with interest. Yeah, we highly value, of course, journalism and and good independent media. I didn't start the site. A lot of people think I started it, but I but I joined way back in 2008. So been on this for over a decade. And I don't think I would have had the foresight to start it to start a site like this. But I do think it's it's pretty wild how important it is. Oh yeah, when you're taking on centuries old industries, you need to have a voice against the future. And so that's that's why it's so important. In terms of my own journey to uh, being a venture capitalist in, in clean tech, started a long time ago, like the, the day after I graduated from college, I, I went to work for as an intern for the Sierra Club in Washington, D.C. And while at that time I, I didn't even know what a venture capitalist was, I knew that important things were happening around our planet and our public lands and wildlife and pollution. And then very soon, climate change appeared on the, the picture, albeit in a, in a very techie uh, non-mainstream way. So it's always been a passion of mine to protect the planet and use, when I started, using government to help make that happen. And then as I moved into business and investing, I realized that policy is super important, but so is innovation through the, the private sector and investment capital to to finance those those early innovations, and so was able to be in the the Bay Area for for many many years, investing in tech and life sciences, and and got the opportunity to move into in a big way uh, into clean energy and related technologies back in the early two thousand period. Yeah, I imagine you probably are pretty happy with how <laughs> your your shift from policy and politics to business because you've obviously done a tremendous job. Uh, you've picked quite a few few winners very early on. Uh, I'll ask uh, how, how did you, you you know you've invested you invested in Tesla, SpaceX, Solar City, several others. But I'll just to start with Tesla. How did you get into Tesla in the early days? And what did you expect from from Tesla back back then? And, and how does that compare to what they've done so far? Well, I don't think anyone could have predicted the phenomenon that Tesla has become. I mean, in, as a VC, you're always hoping to to you know hit that grand slam, but you're not. <laughs> you don't think you're going to set world records uh, the way that, that Tesla has. But in, in terms of how we went about it, it's actually not intuitive because one of the goals of our, our fund, and we were part of JP Morgan back then before we spun out to create DPL, our first fund was a regional fund. And we were looking to invest in great companies, but also create jobs and not just jobs for people that know how to code, or that, uh, but jobs for folks that didn't have perhaps the same access to education 
population and we're living in lower income areas. And so when we closed the fund, we said, okay, well, we can't just, we're going to do everything pretty much according to normal, but we do have to pay attention to jobs because that's kind of what we promised people. And so we first heard of PowerLight, the big solar integrator. And that was in a low-income neighborhood. So we looked at that. We heard about the early days of Tesla through a Stanford connection and were able to meet J.B. Straubel uh, very early on. So we, we, A, we were very impressed with J.D. And, and of course, had always been interested in the electric car. But when we heard about it, we were like, wow, um, if that's successful, car companies employ a lot of people. Um, we, <laughs> and so we were like, wow, this fits, uh, this checks a lot of our boxes, sustainability, job creation, really interesting founders and, and big vision. So that was how how we approached it. And so we worked to, to, to get into that deal because we were pretty unknown at that time. And, and so we were successful and, and then worked with the company for many years as it was going through its various growing pains. And then you exited at some point? We, we did exit and we, we distributed stock to our investors and let them kind of decide what they were, what they wanted to do with it. And obviously, the whole manufacturing, mean, th this is one of the most stunning things for me. One of the things that sort of blows my mind and also makes me a little uh, quite irritated is you have this company that, you know, we're, we're, you have this company that's creating so many jobs, so many manufacturing jobs, especially at a time when there's so much discourse about how the U.S. has lost manufacturing. And uh, I think it's fascinating that you that, that was a core early point for you all. And and it's just, it's why we, we did an article last year, how Tesla's achieved basically eight impossible goals that, that we went through through and it is amazing i don't think anyone including elon or jb or anyone expected it to do so well but elon responded on twitter at that time that they had forty-five thousand people employed and that's just a tremendous success story american manufacturing success story especially that gets un like it's unspoken it's it's never covered in this this so many, so many stories about Tesla in the mainstream media and CNBC business inside of these places. Well, I, you know, I, I think that our side of the energy picture always gets less coverage than it should. I agree with you on that. But I do think people recognize the behemoth that in terms of job creation that Tesla and, and the solar industry as well have yeah. become. So you know, especially solar. in the Bay, a the Bay Area, where we had lost the the Numi plant, which is now the Tesla plant in Fremont. You know, five thousand people lost jobs when that closed right. um, in the early, I think the early two thousands. So it, it's not lost on a lot of people. It's just not as as front and center as it should be. In terms of the solar industry, we we saw very very early because we had PowerLight in our portfolio, which was eventually sold to SunPower. We had Solar City, and uh, were very active in the, the early days of building solar in, in California. And when 2008 happened, because we, and we count the jobs in our portfolio, that's part of our mission is to be held accountable to, you know, creating jobs for a more diverse array of employees, not just coding jobs. And so when when 2008 happened and the world just went off the, the rails and there was so much dislocation and job loss, we actually uh, looked at our numbers and saw that our job numbers were actually going up. And so we, we dug in and we, we saw that um, the solar industry was creating jobs at a very fast clip. And so very early on, we said, wow, we're just coming out of this great recession. This industry is creating jobs. This is what 
every governor, every politician should know because politicians like to create jobs. And so we saw very early that the job creation aspect of the solar industry would be one of its strongest assets. And, and that has continued to this day yeah, with the Solar Foundation yeah, the solar re- releasing yeah, yeah, last yeah, week, the, the job report. It's it's amazing. What was the total now? The total is... It's over over 200,000, I think. It's way up. Yeah. It's just staggering. And if you compare that to coal, it's, it's dramatically more, you know, multiples. More oh, way than, more than coal. Than yeah, coal. many years ago. So it's, yeah. it's ironic, again, so, that there's so much discussion about energy jobs, but that often in the mainstream discussion ignores the the behemoth you know that solar has become wind as well solar installers and wind turbine technicians i know some years have been the fastest growing type of job in the united states and you know it's a huge portion of our economy now while we have a ways to go it's a lot more accessible than other industries you don't have to you know have a phd you don't have to even have a technical degree to get a good paying job in the solar industry they're, they're very localized democratized i know there's been of course companies like solar city and sunrun and uh, vivint solar have tried to become you know the, the the top solar companies but that's actually one of the wonderful things about solar is it's naturally good at being democratized and localized so you have a lot of mm-hmm. small businesses and small, uh, individ- you know, one or two person, even businesses and jobs across the country. Well, you, you've been, again, very early uh, in solar, early to mid 2000s was a hugely different solar market than today. I know you've invested in, in companies like you've already mentioned, as well as concentrated solar power companies, which is a whole different thing, solar thermal. Um, I know you've you've got investments not only in U.S. focused companies, but for example, Zola, which used to be off-grid electric, which does tremendous work in Africa, bringing solar to an enormous number of households. Can you speak a little bit more about how you've seen the solar industry change since back then and, and, and up to today and basically what you see for the solar industry in the next three to five years, what kind of shifts you would expect? Well, it's completely different than when we when we started. I was having dinner with a friend, a CEO in the solar industry over the weekend, and, and he mentioned that he had done two gigawatts in the last quarter, wow. which I mean, we used to get excited when we did 100 megawatts a year. Yeah. I mean, so the scale is just so different. And now it's a cost game. It's a, you know, squeeze every penny out of that cost profile and develop efficiencies and, and scale. And, and so that's what you're seeing. I think what, what is reminiscent of the early day, earlier days of solar today is the, the storage component because that isn't as mature. It's, it's fundamental to getting to those high levels of renewable penetration. And, and, and there's a lot of technical as well as business model innovation. So the two together, renewables and storage, are really unstoppable. And I think that you'll see vast growth um, of that combination, both behind and in front of the meter going forward. And that really is the way to displace the, you know, the use of natural gas peaker plants, even mainstream gas plants as you get into longer duration storage, seasonal storage. So there's there's so much opportunity and, and we have to do it quickly because we can't be curtailing all of this wonderful renewable energy because we don't have a way to store and, and move it and, and uh, use it when we 
when it's necessary. And this gets into a pretty technical area, but I know early on there were claims from uh, sort of the pessimists, the skeptics that, you know, solar couldn't have more than a 3% or 5% market share. Otherwise, the grid would not be able to handle it. As solar grew, that, that grew to more like a 20%, you know, it, it got a lot a lot bigger. But there was still always this, this point that, you know, sooner or later, because of how the grid operates when electricity is needed, that there's a kind of limit to how much solar can can take up the portion of the market before it needs storage. And the, the funny thing is back in the day, it was like, oh, well, solar would hit some kind of wall. And now it's become very obvious to, to even, the, I think, the skeptics that solar plus storage is, is cost competitive, uh, starting to be cost competitive in many areas. It's not only, not only cost competitive, it's better. It, right. it it allows you to reshape your load, to take advantage of tariffs that argue for storing your uh, solar power when it's abundant and, and using it instead when when there isn't as much on the grid. I mean, it's just... Extremely it's responsive. A, I remember seeing that these graphs from a company, Unicos in, in Germany, that just showed how peaker plants would, would match demand surges and how, you know, they were sort of, they were the ideal at the time back 10, 15 years ago for, for matching high spikes in demand or whatnot. But then he, yeah. he, he looked at it compared to a battery and it's so extremely precise and perfect compared to a gas peaker plant. It's just much more responsive. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to see in many places any more gas peaker plants built over the next several years. It's just, it's too expensive. It's slow, slow to build. You can do with storage very quickly. The things that a peaker plant does in a clean way, much more. You can actually get better at trading your energy. You can reshape your your load to maximize for clean, for cost, for, for um, grid conditions. Uh, there's just, we're just in the early days. We're kind of moving spreadsheet days of energy trading and such to AI-driven, very intelligent use of generation and storage assets. Yeah, we'll have to get into AI st- topics another day. So uh, I mentioned already Zola. Uh, I think it's it's a fascinating company that, that you've been a mm-hmm. part of from the beginning or near the beginning. I interviewed one of their founders, former co-CEO, uh, a couple of times and just really loved this company. Can you speak a little bit more about its birth, growth and, and evolution? Sure. Uh, Zola, which used to be called Off-Grid Electric, is the the next generation of of solar and storage for the developing world it, and it's a wonderful blend of bay area technology chops with on the ground local african driven business model and and employee base and when that combination works it it can change the world and what we have seen with zola is that it started in the rural tanzanian model with you know, bringing solar and storage to, to folks that didn't even have electricity using a pay-as-you-go model. The, the cell phone is, is ubiquitous in Africa as a payment model. So that that has been tremendous growth, tremendous impact, and it helped move the company as they grew. It helped move the whole field away from just the NGOs and the government funding, which is 
critical in the early days to attract the impact investors, the venture capital, and, and that, like, like us. And then we saw the, the corporations come in, the EDFs, the Totals, NG came in to some other companies in the sector, uh, recognizing that they needed a 21st century story in Africa and, and uh, fossil fuels was really not, not going to be that, that story on a distributed basis. And now the company is moving even beyond that rural opportunity to go right at the very, very serious problem that exists in Africa, where there's a weak grid, for example, in, in Lagos, Nigeria, in Nigeria, where because people need their air conditioning, need their electricity 24-7, and they don't get it from their grid, they buy diesel generators and they put them in their apartments or in their buildings. And this is a terrible solution for the climate, for, for health, for, for cost. I mean, you just, and, and there are, you know, 100 million people in Nigeria alone that are using diesel generators. So that has to stop. That's just not sustainable. And so Zola has just gone into Nigeria, is releasing a product that will address the that diesel genset in in an urban area with the, the same level of of cost. So this is a game changer. This brings in they're working with the Sterling Bank and Lagos doing local currency loans and such. They brought in a Africa based private equity player called Helios, one of the, the best out there as an investor. So this is this is so important. It's moving growing up beyond the roots of the the World Bank and, and the government programs into a full fledged, very attractive investment opportunity. And what's so attractive is that you know, Africa is one of the fastest growing populations on the planet. And, you know, not too long, Nigeria's population will be larger than the U.S. population. A lot of people wow. don't know that. Did not know that. And, and so if they don't have electricity, I mean, imagine the United States without a good electricity system. That's just yeah, not good news on any, any front. And yeah, then you have a, it's a very young population. It's getting more tech savvy. So there's, there's just so much going on there that you've got to, you've got to play there in order to help build that, that growth for Africa. Yeah. Well, it's been, fa- I mean, it's been fascinating for years. I, I've covered the um, Zayed Future Energy Prize for maybe seven years or something. And I've been on the Mazdar's review committee for finalists at some stage for a couple of years. Um, so I helped evaluate and, and looked at off-grid electric back then. And, and also there's dozens or hundreds of other companies yeah. trying to meet the, match this market. And there are actually so many amazing companies doing, you know, targeting this. It's, it's really inspiring when you dig in. There are a handful of clear hurdles. Uh, it's a topic I'm sure we could talk about for hours, if not days, but just a couple that highlights I would say is, you know, you have, like you said, you have this issue of unstable grids as well as people's completely off the grid. And you have this issue of of diesel fuel being massively expensive, but it being something that they can barely afford month after month or, you know, week after week. So there've been different kinds of solar models to try to, to make it affordable to go solar, to go solar plus storage even with, you know, modest monthly incomes. So Zola's approach to that, you know, maybe you can speak a little more about how you've approached that. And if you have any, I saw Lyndon and Peter Rive just, just joined the team more, which is cool since they've been early investors in, in the in the startup. Can you speak a little bit more about the innovative approach Zola has to tackling that issue of, you know, low sort of low incomes and the need to spread out the cost of these solar plus storage systems? 
Right. Well, it's been fantastic to have Lyndon and Pete working with this company. You know, they are obviously originally from South Africa, have a huge commitment to the, the continent and and I'm a huge set of experts. For, quickly, for anyone listening, these are Elon Musk's cousins who uh, who founded Solar City. Yeah, so and they have you know if there's anyone that knows how to scale solar, it's these two. So it's been great to have them work with with Zola in in various capacities. Well, this is what I was mentioning earlier. The fact that the tech center of Zola is here in San Francisco has allowed the company to come up with an inverter based product that enables users to seamlessly go back and forth between their renewable assets and the, the grid. And, and so it's an AC-based product that now at a very similar cost point to a diesel generator gives you a clean cost cost effective solution and it has to do you know they've been working on this for over two years it's a lot of engineering talent that's gone into this and so it's not just the same old same old it's it's a you know technology directly oriented towards this market of the diesel generator uh, replacement and I think that's what people sometimes don't understand is that it's not just a, a land grab there's there's a huge opportunity there but there's also an opportunity to innovate with better technological approaches and solve some of those th- these problems that have been endemic because if you have a dysfunctional grid it's not going to get fixed overnight you just you have to figure out ways to more sustainably address that intermittent grid and sell across that spectrum. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, we, I'm sure we could really talk about that for hours if, or, or days, but we'll move on to another uh, some other topics. I would quickly ask you, how do you evaluate startups in solar and other industries? You're even broader than clean tech, but what, what's your kind of general approach to evaluating? I'm sure you must get a ton of pitches. We do. Uh, I would say we, we have a trifecta approach that kind of guides us. The first, as impact investors, we're, we're obviously wanting to make great financial returns, but also drive social and environmental progress. So the first part of our trifecta is we, we follow the carbon. And so if there's a, you know, if it's electricity or agriculture or transportation, if there's a carbon problem that's massive, then we're, that's a check we like to, to see it checked off in the box. The second is that we want to fix a problem or several problems. You know, we're not just a me too or a superficial good. We really want to fix the problem of lack of energy access, for example, in in the developing world. Or we want to fix the problem of uh, internal combustion engine driven transportation, on and on and on. And then the third part of the trifecta is that if we look at the incumbents in a sector and we notice that they're they're like a hundred years old or thereabouts. <laughs> we we say, wow, it's it's time to invest because by definition, the 20th century, which was tremendous on many many levels, it optimized for carbon generation. And so the icons of the 20th century, in many cases, are not going to be easily optimized for carbon minimization. And so that's why you, you, you need to promote new entrants. And so when all of those three things happen and we, we sense a management team that is in it to win it, that is to the mission that is doggedly going to pursue the, the goal and lead, lead the team to, towards a growth trajectory that will actually move the needle, you know, that's, that's when we jump in. 
That's interesting. Yeah, the the sort of old company idea is funny. I remember Mark Tarpening, one of the co-founders of Tesla, gave a great presentation. I'm sure he's given it several places, but he talked about how their pitch to investors was that these companies were, you know, sort of old, sluggish, not not responding, and sort of that there was opportunity to to disrupt the market in, in that because of that. And then he was saying that he, after leaving Tesla, went on to consult, advise you know, major automakers, and he discovered that it was actually much worse than they had been pitching people. <laughs> that it was, <laughs> that there was, and you see that still today where Tesla, you know, showed many times, you know, years ago that it was serious and that automakers should respond, but they didn't really take it seriously. And it seems like there's, there's just now the moment where they're so far ahead and other automakers are maybe taking it seriously as they should. Well, I, you know, I, I, as impact investors, we, we want to see other copies uh, other companies, existent in incumbents, copy the electric vehicle model that Tesla so famously has created. Because one company cannot change the world, cannot sell all the cars. A company can change the world, but it can't be the only supplier. And so, and I think everyone at Tesla would love to see the day when the car industry globally was an electric car industry. I don't. I mean, I think that's that's what people have in mind. And while we all see the role that Tesla has played it, it has to it has to go beyond that and yeah. and i think it is yeah uh, no, it, it's, I, it's taken a lot longer and there yeah. have been many fits and starts and there, yeah. there will always be naysayers for sure and this presentation from mark was maybe five years ago so this was not a recent one but but yeah it's very yeah, i mean it's like any innovation cycle you there's always an inflection point and you often don't recognize it when you're right in the middle of it but you know, when you see what is it, countries like Norway saying no more gas cars by whatever they said. I mean, when you see whole countries saying there aren't going to allow gas, gasoline powered cars, when you see fleets that are increasingly developed as electric fleets, I mean, these are the, the inflection points that we'll look back on and, and say, wow, that's when we moved from early adopters and mid adopters to mainstream. Definitely. And yeah, and like you said, you know, Tesla, as excited as we get about them, they're going to produce maybe a few million cars a year in a handful of years. And we need we need multiples of that. So we need all the everyone to shift as quickly as possible. But uh, back to the topic of manufacturing to close out. I, that was a really interesting thing you mentioned, your, your target of, of jobs, job creation, manufacturing early on in, in investing in Tesla. How much potential do you see generally in the U.S. for kind of for manufacturing kind of a renaissance or kind of manufacturing boosts uh, through clean tech? Well, I think that's, that's a huge benefit of, of clean energy and, and related fields is that they, they rely on strengths of our economy and of our people. They, the innovation, the ability to rethink an industry and then use more advanced techniques to bring the costs down, which would traditionally argue that you should manufacture somewhere else. So for all of the controversy around automation and use of robotics and such, those innovations are helping to keep these industries in the U.S., not exclusively, but uh, not not making it impossible for these clean energy companies to, to grow here. And, and so I think the embracing of modern manufacturing techniques by these new entrants is not only helping them grow, it's helping to wake up the, the United States 
manufacturing scene to the the value of of staying. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I think another company we won't uh, don't have time for now, but Siva Power is an interesting one with interesting manufacturing mm-hmm. approach that uh, that you guys invested in. Well, uh, it, it, we we obviously we give a lot of thanks to founders and, and early investors and, and uh, buyers of clean tech. And it's there's a, there are a lot of people to appreciate, millions of people probably to appreciate for for this stuff. But you guys, your 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 team has just been a tremendous facilitator of growth. You you know your early investments in Tesla, Solar City, Zola. Steve, all, all kinds of companies uh, in the clean tech sector. So just a humongous thank you to you for what you've done to <laughs> to hasten this trans- transition to, to help make the world a better place and help well, society. Thank, help us. thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's a huge team out there and we're honored uh, to be a part of it and to play the role that we can. And, and, you know, it's just gratifying to see the growth of the industries, the vision of the next gen entrepreneur it's, it's it's we really have we, we have the opportunity right now to build the future that we all want to see a clean distributed energy and and, and access to to transportation without reliance on fossil fuels it must be su- supremely rewarding and thank you for joining clean tech talk uh, our clean tech talk podcast today for clean technica have a sunny day over there in california thank you uh, really appreciated it thank you for taking the time Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix.